0: Father, we, uh, we cast aside the distractions, we cast aside our journey to get here, we cast aside that time change and all the things that come with that, and we just ask that you meet with us here this morning, teach us in a way that you would have us learn, speak to our hearts and our minds. Amen. So, um, this is the the second week of of Lead Us Back. And the inspiration for this message came actually from a verse in in Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And um, uh, Revelation is a book that um, that high school students and college students really love because it's dramatic and end times seem like a really far away thing. And then there's another group of verses that maybe doesn't seem quite so far away um, and, and we just don't really know what to do with the imagery of, of Revelation. It's it's just it's different. It's it's weird. But all we wanna do this morning, I'm just gonna we're just gonna dip our toes into Revelation, so don't panic. If the idea of Revelation is terrifying, don't worry, we're just gonna we're gonna just glance there and then back away real fast. So so don't panic. But it's a book written by um, John. And he wrote it while he was banished on the island of Patmos. So he's banished because of his faith and this solitude he had during this time. He's just spent with with the Lord and had this vision meeting with Jesus. And Jesus says, write down everything you see. So that's what we read in Revelation is what John is seeing in this this vision, his encounter with Jesus. And the overarching message of the book of Revelation is that good will ultimately triumph over evil. That's really all that matters in that. So we're in chapter 2. And it's a prophecy to the church in Ephesus. So if you think of the book of Ephesians, the letters of the Ephesians, it's that church. That's who we're talking to. A church that's full of zeal for the truth. And it says in verse 2, it says, I know all the things you do. This is Jesus talking. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. And you've discovered that they're liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Great things. Those are all very good things. Well done, Ephesians. But don't get too smug, don't get too comfortable, because immediately following that verse, verse 4, but, and nothing ever goes well after that, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. And that's the bit that I want us to to settle on, this one, that idea in the back of our minds for the rest of the message is this idea of turn back to me, turn back to God, turn back to Jesus, and do the works you did at first. Don't rest back. Don't just get comfortable. Remember what you did at first, that first encounter you had with Jesus, the first time he called you in, that you knew you were known, that you were accepted, that you had a purpose. And if you think back to those days, maybe for you, maybe they were filled with tasks or activities or things that you did. Maybe you can point to those specific actions that you did. But what I think is more important is to recall our inspiration behind those actions. Because if we strip everything back, if we take away our Bible studies, if we take away our music, our Maverick cities, even our color bulbs, if we take away our church services, our uncomfortable chairs, our three different flavors of bagels, If we take all that stuff back, which are good things. Don't get me wrong. They are very good things. They help scaffold our faith. They help us drive forward. But if we take all that away for a moment, what we're left with is a relationship with Jesus. Intimacy and belonging. And it's not as much about action as it is about intention. Now, the movie, Notting Hill. Came out in 1999. I looked it up. 1999, yes. It's a Richard Curtis movie. So it follows um, exactly the kind of plan you think a Richard, Richard Curtis movie would follow a classically dithery Hugh Grant and he lives a very normal life in Notting Hill in London. He um, runs a travel bookstore, I think. And he has, it's in this stage of his life where he's kind of not really sure what's going on, just kind of walking through day by day, has a roommate with questionable qualities. He spends his free time with a small group of friends because you know, he's an adult, he has probably six friends. And it's, it's beautiful in its simplicity. And then Julia Roberts' character comes in. And she's world-renowned. She's the, the most famous of all. It's incredible actress and in big, big movies. They meet, they enjoy the twists and turns of romantic comedies. As you can imagine, they fall in love. Towards the end, there's a scene where Hugh Grant's character has had enough. And he says, I have enough of the fame, the attention and whatever, enough of the pressure, all the stuff that comes with trying to get to know this person. And he calls the whole thing off. Their worlds are too different, non-compatible, it's not gonna work, done. And she replies with this fairly iconic line. She says, the fame thing isn't real. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a guy asking him to love her. Which is super cheesy. And that's why we love it. Because it's cheesy and it's true. Elvis Costello sings the theme song of that wonderful movie. And the last verse, she may be the reason I survive." The why and wherefore I'm alive. The one I'll care for through the rough and ready years. Me, I'll take her laughter and her tears. I'll make them all my souvenirs. For where she goes, I've got to be the meaning of my life. Is she. It's true. You peel back all the layers. The stuff we do. The people we try to be. The the presence we put out into the world. Relationships are just two people. Vulnerably asking each other to love them risking it all and it's that vulnerability that risk that openness that we're called to return to if you think of the stages of a relationship really any relationship other than maybe one that you're you're born into there's an, an initial encounter you meet for the very first time perhaps there's a connection or a spark perhaps your thoughts are aligned or you have the same sense of humor um i was writing this and i was thinking back in um I don't know fifth grade or something. We used to go into the school library, and they would have newspapers when that was kind of a thing. And then we would read through the personals. Do you have personals here? Right, that's a thing where you post like you want to meet someone, you know, before online dating. Yeah, and you were limited on characters, I think, so you're charged by the number of letters you use. So you're trying to condense this thing down. So, so they would all start with WLTM, would like to meet, and then they would talk about you know just companionship and long walks on the beach and all this kind of stuff. And more often than not. This is actually relevant, but it's funny. More often than not, it would end with G-S-O-H. And for longer than I would care to admit, I was convinced that G-S-O-H stood for good sex on heels. And as a fifth grader, I just assumed that sometime in later life, great sex on heels is very important. Turns out, good sense of humor is what that sounds like. <laughs> But as a relationship starts, there's introductions, there's questions. You test the water, you gauge when to be a little bit more vulnerable. It's a little bit of a dance, when to be more available, and a relationship starts to form. You stay on your very best behavior. You don't want to break that spell. You want to please the other person. They're the reason you survive, the why and wherefore you're alive. They're everything. You want to be the one that travels the most. You want to find out more about them, what they like. What makes them tick? What ticks them off? You want to do things that brings joy and that brings honor. But as the relationship continues, it's easy for that to wane. It's easy to take advantage of each other in small ways, to stop making the effort to reach out. It's easier not to be vulnerable and not to let someone in as much as you do because vulnerability takes effort. When you think back on those first days or weeks or whatever of a relationship, it isn't the actions that often need rekindling. It's the love behind it, the intentionality, the vulnerability, the sacrifice and the attitude that needs igniting. If you look even to a startup company, so if you're more, I can't even say entrepreneurial than I am, you'll know more about this. I don't really know anything about it, but I guess you see an opening in the market and then you go after that need, You, you see the need and you go meeting that need. And it's hard. A startup is hard. It takes tenacity and drive and determination. And if you're successful, which Instagram would indicate you of course will be, then looking back to where you started is helpful. Those humble beginnings where the values are high and the task is clear, if not easy, it's clear. It's helpful to remember how you got to where you are. Why are we doing this in the first place? Where's the drive? Where was the vision? What was the goal? So Microsoft, back in '94, they said this bold vision, then bold vision: a computer on every desk in every home, and it was groundbreaking, and it was ridiculous. It was high in the sky. Then they added a computer on every desk in every home, running Microsoft software. So I mean, they had a they had a purpose behind it. It wasn't just a dream. In Joshua 4, we read the instructions that God gives. He's just led His people. They've been hanging out in the wilderness. Leads them across the Jordan, divides the Jordan, walks across, and says this. When all the people across the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men, one from each tribe, and tell them, take 12 stones from the very place where the priest is standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you'll camp tonight. So, Joshua called together the 12 men he'd chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. and He told them, go to the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone, carry it on your shoulder, 12 in all, one for each of the 12 tribes. We'll use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? And you will tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. And these stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. It is good to look back, to see where we have come from to see how we got here and why we did it in the very first place. And if we look back in Scripture, Joshua's predecessor, one of the great leaders of God's people, Moses, we see how this plays out. Now, I don't know how much you know about Moses, but if you don't know much about Moses, he is um, a character in the Bible worth diving into. The story of Moses, just for an example of why you should know more about Moses, covers multiple books of the Old Testament. He's born in Exodus chapter 2, He meets with the Lord, he leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, he leads them through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then finally dies at the end of Deuteronomy at 120 years old after an incredible legacy of ministry. At the end of Deuteronomy, the final few verses, says this, There's never been another prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all of his servants, and the entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. So who better to look at? Now, you will be relieved to know, I don't actually intend to read four books of the Old Testament this morning. I'm gonna bounce around a little bit, so forgive me as a paraphrase and move things through. Um, Otherwise, we'll be here until the next time change. So Moses starts his life away from the Lord, grows up in, in Egypt, doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know God. Rather, finds himself in Midian in the wilderness. He's tending sheep. This is where God meets him for the first time, in the wilderness, tending sheep. For the first time, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. And This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't it burning up? I must go see it. So the Lord told Moses, come and take a closer look. And God called it to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, because you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses hears this, he covers his faith because he's afraid to look at God. So if Moses were to look back, Like like we are. His first works is an encounter. An encounter with trepidation, but with reckless abandon. It's the Lord and it's Moses meeting for the very first time in this awkwardly awful moment. In the middle of nowhere. And from that encounter, that connection, Moses embarks upon a leadership journey that he did not ask for and he is not equipped for. But he goes forward, trusting in the Lord. Trusting that encounter with bold vulnerability and with the Lord's strength. And throughout chapters and chapters of incredible leadership, Moses keeps coming back to that intimacy with the Lord. He knows where his strength comes from. He knows where the source is. He knows that being in God's presence is the first works that he must cling to. The actions change. The tasks are different. The responsibilities might grow larger, but the need is the same. Skip forward 30 chapters. One day Moses says to the Lord, so they're in the wilderness at this point, and Moses is like, what's going on? You've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you'll send with me. You've told me that you know me by name, and, and, and you look favorably on me. And if that's true, if it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your way, so I may understand you more fully, and continue to enjoy your favor. Remember that this nation is your very own people. And the Lord replies, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. And Moses says, still not convinced, if you don't don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. Because how will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on earth. And the Lord replies to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked for. I look favorably on you. I know you by name. And then Moses responds with this incredible phrase, then show me your glorious presence. Show me your glorious presence. When was the last time you knelt down in prayer and asked God with desperation to show you his glorious presence? Moses doesn't ask for wisdom, doesn't ask for answers. He doesn't ask for the obstacles to be removed. He asks for God's presence. He knows a guide is going to be better than just a map. He knows that an intimate relationship with the God of the universe is going to be more powerful and more valuable than anything else. And God grants him that privilege. He hides Moses in the cleft of a rock as he passes by. Moses' face shines, radiates the glory of God, who's easily set apart, reflecting that goodness. And if we spend time in the glorious presence of God, real time, real intentional time, If we seek that intimacy, we too can shine for him. And throughout the story of Moses, throughout his ministry, he constantly goes back to meeting with the Lord. He hikes up Mount Sinai like seven or eight times to spend days upon days with God. Because when we meet with God, when we spend that intentional quality time with him, that is when transformation happens. What do we get when we simply seek to be in his presence? What it tells us in that verse we just read, he will personally go with us. He will give us rest. And he will know us by name. So we get companionship. He will go with us. God offers to walk the road with us, not to simply point the way, not to be a signpost, but to be a companion. In, um, in, in high school and college, I worked at a, um, like a Home Depot type store. And it was actually the um, not Home Depot, Home Depot in England, for some reason called B&Q, and, and we were their um, nemesis. And so our thing was, B&Q, Home Depot is a warehouse. How do we do something that's, that's more fun than that? So we all like customer service and non-warehouse, and we wore green for some reason. It's one of the, the non-negotiable rules of, of Homebase, as it was called, was if a customer asked you where an item was, you were to take them to the item. You were not allowed to point the way, tell them the aisle number, or just, just, just direct them. You had to go with them. Why? Because, customer service-wise, a guide is better than directions. When someone joins you on the journey, you're, you're likely to get to the destination a little more unscathed. So why don't we like it when the shop assistant takes us there? Because it involves a connection. And we've built our lives uh, that protects us from those connections. There's the, 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 me, myself, and I that insulates us from the rest of the world. Because of pride or an unwillingness to feel vulnerable at whatever level. No one wants to admit they're lost. I would rather walk around in circles in the dark than admit to a stranger I don't know where I am. The number of times we're on the subway and my kids are like, we we'll on the right train. And i like, shh, I don't know. But I don't want anyone else to know that I don't know. It will become clear. It requires trust. You have to put some level of trust in the guide. You have to allow yourself to give up your independence for some kind of a dependent relationship. Now, if you're asking for directions, that dependence might be fleeting. But a dependency on God when he walks alongside you requires a little bit more. My um, undergrad was in medical microbiology and I spent some months in um, South Africa years ago establishing a diagnostic laboratory, predominantly to test for TB. Um, And then we're down by the the Kruger Park and at some point this big long trip up the uh, east side of Africa and we found ourselves climbing Kilimanjaro. Now Kilimanjaro is quite high And so there's a couple ways you can do it. You either sort of hike for a day and then spend a day to acclimatize the altitude. And then hike a day and spend a day and hike a day and spend a day. Or you do what we do and you just walk really, really, really slowly. Like crossing the street with an elderly person slowly. Like really slow. Just trying to acclimatize. As long as you can talk with someone while you're walking and the air is getting thinner, you're probably walking at the right pace. Guide's going in front. We're following behind. And the guides, they obviously live here, so they're up and down this mountain every day. They just run up and down, they carry all the things, they're competing with the other uh, tour guides about who can be the best um, host, who can provide the most ridiculous meal up the mountain, who can bring the most watermelons, which is a really hard thing to carry up the mountain. <laughs> there was one day, and we you see, so you have like all these guides, and we had a chef, and I was like, Oh, Kevin, what, 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 was, what was lunch today? I said, Well, I... I took yesterday's rice, and I put it in a, put it in a pot. Okay, it makes sense. And I took the vegetables, and I put, I put it with it. Okay. And then I took some egg, and I, and I mixed it in. All right. And I took the chicken, and I mixed it in. Okay. And then I cooked it. All right. And then I, I made it into like, a, like a, a cake. It's like, okay. And then I dipped it in chocolate. <laughs> and that's, Kevin, where we went wrong. Isn't it? <laughs> That's where we tried a little too hard. Um, but you, so you hike up Kilimanjaro, and then you get um, to the last kind of campsite area, the last place that you hang out, um, I don't know, it's sometime in the afternoon. And then you do the final summit at midnight um, for a couple of reasons. Um, they tell you it's because it's, that way it's frozen. So you can walk up the loose scree, and it's frozen solid, so it's easier. Um, it's also so when you get to the rim, to Gilman's Point, you see the sunrise. So it takes about six hours or so, I'm guessing, to get to the top. So we're doing that. It's pitch black, middle of the night, you're slightly altitude sick. No one's eaten in a while because, you know, no one wants spaghetti when you're altitude sick. And you're walking that same slow pace. Your water bottle has glycerin in it, so it doesn't freeze. It's that cold. You're walking that slow pace. And it was so slow that there was a few of us who were getting really, really cold, so we kind of went ahead. And there's, there's lots of guide groups going up, so you can kind of see where you're going. And then you realize, actually, this is a lot of work. I'm ahead of the guide, our guide. I have to keep looking back to make sure they're with us and they're not too far away. I have to keep looking up to make sure I'm not too close to the next group. This is actually quite hard. This is actually quite dangerous. It's pitch black. I haven't eaten in 24 hours. If I sit down, will anyone know where I sat? Will anyone know to pick me up? And there was a girl on our trip, Larissa, and she was really struggling. And so what she did, or what the guide did, was he put his hand behind and she put her hand out and they, they, they held hands in front and behind and walked up the mountain step by step. If you're in step with the guide, your steps are wordless. And you're wordlessly guided forward. The closer you are to the guide, the easier it will be. We're offered that companionship with God. And we're offered rest. God doesn't want it to be a battle all the time. He wants you to rest. Now, our picture of rest might be independently wealthy on a beach. I think the rest God is offering is a little different. It's a rest for the soul, a peace that comes with a change in expectation, a change in responsibility for where to go or what to do next, a change in the definition even of success, a peace and a rest from a weary, a broken world. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Rest in itself is a testimony of trust. In order to rest, you have to give up the work you're doing, the wheels that you're spinning and to some degree even the control that you have. Babies rest when they are safe. We rest better when we are safe. Back to the startup example, you can rest when you know someone else has it. When you're a company of one, There is no rest. It's companionship and rest, and we are set apart. Not not by what we do, but by what he will do in us. The accompanying presence of God calls us to stand out in the crowd, to be distinct, to be separate and unusual. He calls us to be different from the world and belong to a different world, set apart for a specific purpose, reserved, allocated, chosen. Companionship, rest, is set apart and we're known. Tim Keller Anne, wrote this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than Anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Do you think it's true? We started with um, Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. He lets me rest in green meadows, He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness An unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Moses saw God's glorious presence above anything else. He yearned for an intimate, vulnerable, authentic relationship with his God. And that same God offers the same relationship to you. That same God wants to journey alongside you as a companion, and as a guide. And as Moses was set apart for God's work, so are we, so are you. So remember those first works where your relationship with Jesus began. Rekindle that flame. Spend time in his presence. Find rest for your soul. If you haven't met with Jesus in an intimate way yet, if you haven't spent time speaking, seeking his glorious presence, can I invite you to, to do so? Maybe even this morning. God is calling to you by name as he called Moses. And he wants you to meet with him. God is here. This is holy ground. and We would love to pray with you if that is helpful. Before we go into communion, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to spend some time responding through our songs, through our worship, as we close our service. And can I invite you to spend that time with you and Jesus. Spend some time in his presence. In the context of a family. So will you pray for me a moment? Father, we thank you. We thank you you offer such companionship. We thank you that you offer us rest. We thank you that you know us so fully and you love us so completely. Father, help us to seek your face. Remind us to seek your face. Surround us with your love and your care and your protection. Continue to provide all we need. Amen.